Welcome to Brilliance Realised, a podcast series from Sheridan Worldwide, featuring members of our team, our partners, our clients and specialist guests. Welcome, everybody. My name is Sanchia Marais. I am one of the executive coaches on the Sheridan Resolutions coaching team. A really warm welcome to all our listeners on this new podcast series that we've decided to develop. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my first guest on this series, Dr. Margaret Collins. Margaret and I know each other from a coaching relationship. Margaret was actually my coach for about a year when I was completing a female-focused leadership development program. And Margaret has many, many skills to to her bow. And a really warm welcome, Margaret, if you want to introduce yourself. (laughs) Thank you very much, Sanchia. It's a delight to be here. And yes, to introduce myself, my background is that of a researcher and an academic. I started my career as a molecular virologist. So hunting down those little bits of DNA and RNA viruses. The question that always drove my research was, how does it work? You know, how does something that might only have 10 genes kill something as big as you or me? I loved pursuing the how does it work? And then I, like many people in academia, did my PhD, did a series of postdocs, which is short-term contracts where you move around the place before getting a lectureship and then a senior lectureship and having my own research team. And it was then that I realized, how does this management thing work? Because I'd never had any training in you know, how to manage other people. And at the time, sort of in-house training workshops were not really available. And so I did the best thing I knew how, and I signed myself up for a coaching qualification because I figured out that that skill set would be useful for me as a manager. And I only ever envisaged using that to help me manage my team. And it was quite a surprise when 10 years later, due to a change in personal circumstances, that I became self-employed. I took a break from my academic career in order to care for my sister, who's an adult with learning disabilities. So it was a complete career change. And being a self-employed coach and trainer gave me the freedom and the flexibility to do that. So, you know... I didn't know at the time, but that coaching qualification opened the door to a completely new life. Wow. Okay. Thank you. I mean, it's true. Actually, as I'm listening to to your introduction, it's quite a a journey, actually, of personal discovery. It's that whole question of inquiry, how does it work, can really take you to different places. So I love that question. And it's probably incredibly relevant to what we're going to talk about today. So you were one of the first people I thought about for this topic of belonging. And belonging, when I met with Caroline Sheridan, who is our founding member of the of the Sheridan Resolutions business, we talked about, well, why, why would this be important to people? And before I became a coach, my career was focused on, I was in roles that were heading up learning and talent development. And often that would mean I would be given the task of, helping people overcome their career barriers. And I would meet many people who would be holding back, holding back because they felt that somebody needed to spot the talent that they had, or other reasons could be that they were not good enough. You know, they just simply felt that they weren't worthy of being invited to the top table 
or they felt that because of their gender that that might be something that's getting in their way or that they've got children. There were so many different reasons that people didn't feel or they needed some support, some coaching support. In my own life, my origin is I'm of Indian origin, so I was born here in Britain, but I'm from Goa in India. I've struggled a lot, actually, with this topic of belonging. It's been an interesting word to me over the last few years. And I know that I personally have held back, you know, because I've tried to fit in, tried to fit in with the social norms, go to the pub, even if I don't want to, or do things that I don't want to do, because I want to fit in, be part of British society. There's a lot to it, I think. And I hope that we, in the time online today, will unpack that. So I've introduced this word belonging, and that's the theme for our podcast series. What is it that it means to you? What's popping up for you when I first said this to you, or even now as I'm saying to you, what what is belonging meaning to you? Belonging means that I can show up, I can be present with my whole self without having to worry that anything I personally bring to the table will mean that I will be excluded or rejected. Now, that's not to say that you have to agree with my every idea or my thought, but me as a person, I can show up. I don't need to hide anything. That really resonates with me, actually, that whole thing of showing up, being able to not not have that feeling of hiding. I think you and I chatted about a dictionary definition for belonging, and the definition you, you'd found was, I quite liked it, actually. Do you mind just sharing that with me? Yeah. The simplest definition was that belonging is an affinity for a place or a situation. You know, you an affinity with it. a place. Yes. So that yeah. it's a place or a situation. That's very true, actually, because I think possibly we can have a different relationship or way of showing up in different contexts. I'm a dancer as well as a coach. I I do a lot of salsa dancing. I certainly feel more able to show up there than I do in, in a professional situation. Is that what you think that's the context of what you're doing and where? Absolutely. And for years, I struggled with this because, you know, the idea to be authentic Was there one authentic me that was the same everywhere? And absolutely the core of me is authentic, but I now see it as being almost like the facets of a diamond and that the light is reflected and refracted differently depending on the the perspective of the viewer, of the observer. It's not that the diamond is inauthentic when it shows up with a different color or reflection. It's still the same diamond, but it might appear slightly different. I absolutely love that, Mark. The kind of fact that you're still a diamond, it just depends what the light looks like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really lovely. I like that a lot. Thank you. I want to talk a bit more about this subject matter that you've really spent time on in your career and this uh, imposter syndrome, So, which is, which is the main crux of what I really want to talk about today. And you've written a book on this subject, yeah. which is one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you speak on this. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, imposter syndrome is something that I know both very personally and professionally. For much of the early part of my career, I really felt like an imposter. Except for the early part of my career, I didn't know that. I didn't have a name for it or a word for it. You know, I'd never heard of imposter syndrome. And it was only when I was training as a coach that the concept was introduced to my conscious knowledge. I thought, that, me, I now see what's going on. 
And it was only then that I really gained understanding of what the situation was, how it had arisen and, you know, why it affected me and the tools to do something with it. Now, I know that today imposter syndrome is discussed much more than it was you know, 20 years ago, but I still think that there are some very simple tools that we can all use to deal with it, but they're not necessarily as widely known as I would, you know, as I would like them to be. There's also, I think, a little bit of hesitancy for some of us to think that we are unique, that everybody else thinks that they're imposters, but me, I'm the real imposter. And therefore, I can't be fixed by those little tips. There's something genuinely wrong with me. And I absolutely challenge that. I don't want any woman or any man to believe that. And so I thought if I wrote the book, it would be able to explain to people a little bit about the origins of their feelings and to give them some really concrete tools that they could use to change the way that they think. I've mentioned to a couple of people this phrase, imposter syndrome, and I think people do relate to it, but I feel like they don't quite understand what it is or what they can do about it. It's almost like a sort of doctor's diagnosis that you've got this chronic condition and, you know, what do I do now? You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. am I sort of crippled or am I somehow flawed forever? In fact, when I looked up the uh, definition online of what is what is this imposter syndrome, I mean, Wikipedia says it's a psychological pattern in which a person doubts their skills, talents, accomplishments, and they have this persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud, you know, this feeling of being a fraud, always feeling yeah. like convinced that they, they are whatever has positive things happening to them, that, that was just some other reason. And actually, I'm not worthy of this. Is that your understanding in terms of what, what you describe in the book? This absolutely, absolutely. Now, imposter syndrome is not a, a medically diagnosable condition. So, you know, there is no one set way that people show up. And because it's about thought patterns and behaviors, people show up on a spectrum. So there will be some people that are affected a little bit and they know it, but you know what? It's mild inconvenience and they can deal with it. And at the other end of the spectrum, there will be people who are incredibly anxious, incredibly stressed, and it massively affects and impacts on their behavior and performance. And of course, there's everything in between. It's also about it can affect us in specific situations. So we can be perfectly okay in you know most of our professional lives, but in one situation or with one particular person, we get this massive imposter hijack and our imposter syndrome feelings stop us bringing ourselves to the table. People who are affected by imposter syndrome feelings attribute their success to external factors. I was lucky. People were just being nice to me. Uh, it was fantastic timing, but you know, it had nothing to do with me. And of course, if we can't create our own success, we are going to be incapable of repeating it. There's also the element that the people who have imposter syndrome feelings feel that for whatever reason, other people think very highly of them. You know, I've created a false impression of myself so that you think I'm really great at what I do. I've no idea how that comes about. but. It's you who have overestimated how good I am at this. And therefore, I now have to try and live up to your expectations. And people who are often affected are very intelligent. They are often academically high achievers. And that's 
frequently about experience and qualifications, but not exclusively. Sometimes it's, you know, years in the job. I've done this so long, so often that I'm the person that people turn to in the office to ask questions. And yet I don't quite know how I acquired this. Now, all sorts of psychological things fit in there, including you know, the cognitive dissonance, because you know, I'm here, I'm in this role, I have this responsibility, but I've no idea how. And then there's the confirmation bias, because we don't believe it. We keep looking for the bits of evidence that prove that we don't belong. No matter how much evidence comes up to prove that we really are good at what we do, the only bits that we notice and we hang on to are those tiny looks that, you know, that marginal comment where someone might have said something. And we take those doubts into our heart and into ourselves as proof of, I'm an imposter, I don't belong. And I think different people call it different things. You know, some people call it imposter syndrome and the feeling of being a fraud. Some people, it's about the not ever being quite good enough. For many people, it's about, I, I don't belong. I really don't fit in here. We take all of these and in our head, we then turn it into, because I'm different, because I'm somehow distinguished from my peers, I don't belong, and therefore I must be a fraud. Faulty thinking. Mm. When does that start, Margaret? Does that happen when you're born or when you're a child? How, how do you acquire these this sort of thinking pattern? I think for many of us, it happens maybe very early in life, not necessarily when we're born or when we're infants, but you know, when we're at school and when we're being educated, what we try to do, and it absolutely comes down to this desire to belong. The need to belong is an innate human need. You know, as human babies are born so vulnerable that if at some level they can't persuade a human caregiver to care for them, then they're dead. As a biological imperative, belonging is important for our survival. And certainly by the time we get to school, by the time we engage in any form of education, that need to fit in, that need to belong is, is a really high imperative for the vast majority of us. And we learn to look for things that mean that we're different. We might be rejected. People might not like us because. And the reasons can be many and varied because we will take that message in our heads and make it to mean something else. It sounds like it's sort of this confirmation bias that you referred to earlier is sort of built up yeah. potentially yeah. over a long period of time. Yeah. Certainly, I can relate to that, that sort of knowing that I was different from a very early age and sort of yeah. making the decision yeah. actually then, if I don't fit in, then I must be, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be somehow accepted as an equal. And it can be we, we don't belong for, you know, so many different reasons. Mm -hmm. It can be, you know, the, the simplest, in a sense, the most obvious is gender, you know, a woman in a male-dominated environment, a male in a female-dominated environment, being very, very different. But it can be about social class. Mm -hmm. It can be about our accent. It's obviously for many people about, you know, race and culture, color of your skin and disability. It can be about internal things like sexual orientation or gender identity, religions, beliefs, spirituality, politics, any reason that we pick up on for being different to our peers. And it's then turning that into the meaning of because I'm different, I don't belong. Now, I am sure you know 
that the research shows that diversity in organizations, diversity in teams brings great creativity. It brings greater innovation. It brings higher levels of morale. You know, there are so many positive effects of this within organizations. And yet our faulty thinking means I don't belong. They will reject me if they find out. And therefore I need to hide this bit of me. It's almost like my shameful secret. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let them see it. And I really think that this is why imposter syndrome and belonging, the themes go together just so well. Yes. You've obviously done a lot of work with organizations and individuals trying to address these sorts of topics. What is it that you've noticed shows up most often in organizations? Where are the blocks, really? Again, it depends on the individual because we're affected on a spectrum of behaviors. It is slightly different and shows up slightly differently in men and women or people with masculine energy or feminine energy because you can get some women who have a very masculine energy and a very masculine approach to aspects of their work and equally you can get men that have a more feminine approach to work. If we feel that we don't belong, if we feel that if people really knew who we were, they would reject us then we hide that bit of ourselves. So frequently in organizations, imposter syndrome shows up as, I don't put myself forward. I won't volunteer for a position of leadership. I won't take on a risky project unless I'm absolutely certain that I can deliver on it. I won't voice an opinion that might be slightly controversial or might be criticized. I'll be quiet, I'll play it safe which of course means that the organization and the people that we work with miss out on our ideas, our innovation, our creativity, our insights, and you know, and we hold ourselves back. Now, that then means that we get frustrated because you know, we annoy ourselves when we do this. It means that we get frustrated when we hear, you know, we, we hold ourselves back and we hear a colleague give an answer and we think, I knew that. You know, I knew that. I knew more than that. But now they're getting the praise and I'm sitting here like a wallflower in the back row. It affects us when we see our colleagues rightly being promoted and advancing their careers because, yes, they've done the stuff to earn it. But we know, you know, we could be doing that. And I'm the one that's holding myself back. So there's that side of it. The other side of the coin, some people will do the exact opposite. If they feel like a fraud, what they'll do is they'll prove if I can be good enough, if I can be perfect enough, if the work that I turn out can be so good that nobody will pick a hole in it, they might not suspect that I'm a fraud. It's such a shame, the whole way that organizations, I remember feeling like it was unique to me, <laughs> that actually... Nobody else is having this experience of not belonging. Actually, it's only me. Everyone else is having a whale of a time. <laughs> and, and I know that, that that feeling of isolation can show up too. There isn't that, I'm all alone, you know. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, there's the, oh, well, everybody's got it, haven't they? And at the same time, but, yeah, it's really me. Now, if you do surveys of the general population, the research shows that maybe 70, 72% of people say that they are affected by imposter syndrome feelings. 
at some stage in their life or career. But if you go within professions where expertise and intelligence are valued, now, how many professions does that tick? Where expertise and intelligence are valued in those organizations, the experience of imposter syndrome feelings rises to the high 90s. You know, that means that if you walk into a room, you know, there are nine other people in the room, they will all be feeling like imposters, possibly apart from one. And, you know, you then see how we are all putting layers and layers and layers of trying to hide who we really are, trying to hide our perceived weakness and vulnerability. And, you know, for me, this ties into a lot of the work that Brene Brown does on courage and vulnerability, because she says what we then do is we put on armor that, again, stops our real selves showing up. Do you think that people can feel a sense of support, relief when they're able to share that you've got to be willing to allow yourself to be pretty vulnerable, actually, to even admit it? I mean, I remember I was in a circle of women on the program that I was on with you. And I remember saying, I don't belong here because I can see around me that there isn't anybody that reflects me. And I was so surprised when others around the circle sort of said to me, well, I don't belong either because I'm of a certain age. And another person piped up and said, well, I don't belong either because I have an invisible disability. So for me, that really opened my eyes that I'm not alone. And it did help me a lot. Is that something that people can access more by having more spaces in the organization to talk about this subject? Yes, absolutely. There's no one reason why people experience imposter feelings. We can take anything about ourselves and label it as because of this, therefore I don't belong, which is why it's part of that internal thought process. Organizations, I think, will be really benefiting from ways of saying we actually value difference. We value diversity. We care about the real you, including the bits of you that you think make you don't fit. We think that they bring richness. We think that they add value. And we'd love you to share them with us. I'm so keen to find out what is it. And I really want listeners to have some takeaways, really, I suppose, about their own relationship to the belonging. And hopefully I'd I'd love for people to pick up. You've got some resources and books, which we'll we'll signpost to at the end of this podcast. But I'm curious to know what advice have we got for organizations or for managers or leaders who who can spot these sorts of behaviors and thought processes happening in in the workplace. What's the first step to addressing these things? For me, it comes down to you as an individual, particularly if you have a role as a manager or a leader or a thought shaper in that organization, being honest about your own doubts and your journey to self-acceptance, because most of us have that journey you know, we're at different stages on it. I don't think that we can really belong in an organization until we belong to ourselves. We need to understand ourselves. And that's one of the things that I stressed in the book that I wrote, is that we need to own our own stories in all their richness and complexity, with all their ups and their downs, because those stories have shaped us and created us and given us the resources we have. 
only when we can really accept ourselves will we be able to share ourselves with others. And so as a manager, I know that there were many occasions when I talked to you know my more junior members of staff about the doubts that I'd had when I was at their stage in the career. And even the doubts that I faced today when I was going into a meeting and I knew it was going to be challenging or difficult or, but, you know, what I was going to do was start. And the first thing is always start with taking a deep breath and grounding yourself. The old thing of, you know, stop and count to 10. There's real wisdom in that. Stop and count to 10. Take a couple of deep breaths and then own what you're feeling. Own the doubt and own the uncertainty and own the fear even. Recognize it for what it is. Now, in the past, in the early stages of my career, when I felt those feelings, I took that to mean, therefore, I didn't belong. Now, I say, those feelings, this is an imposter hijack. That's all it is. It's a set of feelings. It's an imposter hijack. Just because I feel this way doesn't mean I am a fraud. I have these skills. I have this insight. I have this experience. Just take a deep breath. Feel the feeling. And then do what your best self would want. I think that's really great advice. Absolutely. That whole thing about owning your own story. I'm wondering about where I've come across individuals who are convinced that whatever is happening to them is because of person X or organization X. It's because they don't understand me or... They don't care. And even if I did own my story and acknowledge my fears, they're not going to change anyway. Do you have any thoughts about those sorts of thinking patterns? (laughs) One of the things I think that we need to really recognize is that life is not fair. You know what? Life is not fair. And occasionally some people won't like you. And you have to be okay with that. Because you can't control other people. The only thing that you can control is yourself and your choices and how you respond to the situation that you find yourself in. And so in that situation, how is your thinking or how is your behavior making it better or worse? You know, you might think that they don't like you or they're blocking your advancement. That may or may not be true. But how is your thinking making it better or worse? It's not about is this true or is it right or is it wrong, but which is more helpful. And I often find if I can own my own role in that situation, I can choose more helpful behaviors. If it's all about them, then they have all the control. I can do nothing. Yes, it's almost the opposite of taking ownership, isn't it? It's sort of blaming the other person or the other entity. There's always a part that you have to play and some way of influencing a part of it, even if it's not the whole thing. Absolutely. So, you know, from that coaching context, the conversation is about what's your role in this? What are your thoughts? What are your behaviors? And how can you choose thoughts and behaviors that would be more helpful? Mm -hmm. Do you think there are policies or ways that structures that could be implemented for organizations that might just move the dial a little bit to, to help people not exacerbate these thinking patterns? I mean, there are many very good resources that people can use to help influence internal policy. My background is as an academic researcher within universities and higher education institutes in the UK, we have something called the Athena Swan Award, which is started off supporting women in science, but now it's 
women in general throughout the universities and therefore organizations are encouraged to do various audits and to have things in place and they help they're not the only solution but they help because you need both policies and procedures that check and you need to change hearts and minds and one of the things that i really value and, and would flag up to your listeners is that the lean in organization and they have the website leanin.org have some great resources for fighting unconscious bias and they've got something that's you know 50 ways to fight unconscious bias and it it's a free resource and it is excellent and you know for anyone that's looking for something that they can use to bring in to an organization to begin to start helpful discussions about how we address things around difference this is a, a tool that i think i can really recommend and share with you thank you margaret in fact i'm really pleased you've mentioned unconscious bias because that will be another podcast that i want to do a recording with and because i do feel absolutely that is relevant to this subject of belonging is is the unconscious bias that we are bringing and interacting with and there are resources that you can use to mitigate the risk of biases like that so thank you for that signpost it's just been really interesting listening to you margaret and your insights on this imposter syndrome and the effects of it and how how we can acknowledge it i suppose in the first place that's really the start it sounds like of how you can move forward from there is actually just having that self-awareness you do have some support that you personally have developed as well is is there anything you can share about that of course there's the book definitely and i know that you you also have a web a great website do you want to say a little more about that well my personal coaching website is margaretcollins.com and I certainly have created a page for podcast listeners. That's margaretcollins.com forward slash you matter. It's got lots of resources related to imposter syndrome feelings, some, you know, videos that give you insight into both, you know, how it happens, what you can do about it and how you move forward. It's got a link to the book beyond imposter syndrome. And it's got a link to a program called overcoming imposter syndrome feelings. So. Get yourselves, you know, if you're interested in this and if you think it affects you or the people that you work with, margaretcollins.com forward slash you matter is a great place to find a, a number of my resources all put together for you. That's really helpful, Margaret. Thank you so much. And I think that it is definitely worth a look if there are listeners out there who have been touched or provoked or curious from this podcast. It's a good place to follow up. It's not a kind of turnkey solution, this one, is it? You know, it's, I don't think it's an overnight pill that you can take to kind of um, address it. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I'm not sure you can ever really cure imposter syndrome feelings. In my experience, wherever you're going to expand your comfort zone and do something brave, you're likely to see that sense of, you know, am I really good enough for this coming back again? The thing is that once you recognize it, you can use the tools immediately. And in fact, now I welcome those imposter feelings because they are the flag to me that tells me that I'm about to do something brave and I'm going to be really proud of myself. That's really it's so true. Absolutely true. There's a gift in these things as well, Absolutely. isn't there? And having a mindset of openness to the gift, even if it's going to be a bit 
uncomfortable is a very healthy mindset to have. I really, really want to thank you, Margaret, for, for your time and energy and expertise and knowledge on this call. If people want to get in touch with you to follow up, how can they do that? Certainly come through my website, absolutely, or email me directly at info at margaretcollins.com. That will get directly through to me. That's amazing. Thank you. If there are any listeners who want to chat to me personally about this subject or it's inspired some or would like to have a conversation to see, well, how can I focus on this? And we can help you with finding some solutions. You can contact me at sanchiamareas at sheridanresolutions.com or you can access any of the Sheridan Resolutions team on the Sheridan Resolutions website. But I look forward to lots of your comments from our listeners and any email you might want to send, please do send it over. But in the meantime, I'm going to let Margaret go. Thank you so, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you too, Sanchia. Delight. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 